in the past, the data was show me your resume, do a behavioral interview or a panel interview, and we'll make a risk-based assessment on whether we think you're a good fit. And the result of decades of that is the market saying there's no skilled talent in the market. No, there's plenty of skilled talent. They just don't have the skills that you need. So we've got to build the skills and let's use data-led employment to do that. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge, and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, my guest today is Tom Larter, a seasoned business leader with a passion for driving technological innovation and social impact across global markets. Tom's a former captain of the Australian Army and had a distinguished career over 13 years as an infantry officer, including service in Afghanistan. In 2017, he transitioned to the private sector and became one of the early leaders of a business called With You, With Me, one of Asia Pacific's fastest growing tech companies. What I loved about our conversation was the real leadership challenges day to day and how we should stop and take a moment to think for just a few seconds before we take action. The perspective we can gain from that simple yet powerful habit. Let's jump right in. Tom Lardo, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Martin. It's really good to be here. Yeah. Look, um, question I ask my guests first up is, how did you end up joining the service or, in your case, the Australian Army? Um, it's a good question. Going through high school in Brisbane, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I wasn't inspired by the idea of going to university like many of my friends and some role models and teachers suggested that uh, I had a I had a strong sense of adventure. I, I enjoyed leadership roles in school and perhaps the military would be a good environment for me to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, some of them were ex-military, others not. And, and so I investigated my options and that led me down the path of uh, trying to go to RMC Duntroon direct. 18 months, but I was I was too young. I would have graduated just having turned 18. And now I know that's way too young. So I ended up going to the Defence Force Academy and, and doing university anyway. But really, it was the military time that, that inspired me and got me through that degree. And then, of course, into the military afterwards. Yeah. Great. Up in Brisbane and um, school, who were your early leadership heroes? Um, early leadership heroes, uh, my dad. You know, I can remember um, he's he's a humble guy, quick-witted, genuine, and lots of stories. He worked in the public service at senior levels, and I can always remember from an early age, Dad talking to me about being humble and genuine. You know, like Tom, don't don't blow your own trumpet. Let people tell your story based on your actions. And you know, I think some of those early conversations you don't realize they're lessons, and maybe he didn't either, um, but they stay they stay with me. So certainly, Dad, and then I can remember it. 15 or 16, I got handed Colin Powell's book mm. in my American journey by a friend of dad's who knew I was thinking about the military at that time. And that book stayed with me for years. He's got, Please. you know, he's got 13 rules for leadership in that book at the back. Yeah. And, and going through school, I had them printed out and put on my wall. I think maybe I was a bit of a nerd like that. And that helped me get through school and get the grades mm. I wanted to get into the academy because I wasn't meeting the threshold at the time. And I had to really knuckle down and, you know, there's some 
maybe two things from that book that stay with me till today is um, it ain't as bad as you think, so it'll look better in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and perpetual optimism, force mm-hmm. multiplier. And yeah. I love those two things. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of us have gone to that Colin Powell sort of 13 rules of leadership and um, and a, and had them on our wall. And I don't think there's any nerdy about that at all. I think you know what it tells me is that there's a there's a real clear focus on what you were trying to get done and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Mm. You join uh, the army through the Defence Force Academy and and ultimately go through Duntroon and uh, graduate as a uh, as a lieutenant in the infantry. Uh, what was the next move for you in the, in your service career? Um, so I guess I was kind of one of the lucky ones. That's certainly what it felt like at the time. Um, you know, that things were really ramping up internationally and there was a mm. lot going on on deployments and everyone wanted to get on a deployment. And so I, I went on the ROBC for infantry. Mm. And as we were finishing ROBC, a, a few of us from the 7th Battalion got a phone call from the CO saying, you're on the next rotation, um, you know, make sure you pass. Uh, and get back to the get back to the battalion and 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 we did and so that was you know we finished around Anzac Day if I remember correctly and then by the time we got back to the battalion we got our we got our platoons we started ramping up and and come October September October we were we were deploying into Afghanistan and so that was me having just turned 21 in fact I turned yeah I turned 22 that November um you know in Afghanistan first mentoring trip a lav troop, an engineer troop, an infantry platoon, um, and I can remember missions where see you later for thirty days. Go out yeah. and do this task, and just ring us if you need anything. Like, yeah, that's almost ludicrous for <laughs> you know when you think about it now. Um, but it really does show you that the, the training works, and 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 the responsibility can be put on you. Yeah, and this is a key point, isn't it? That training works, and and often. We don't think about that training enough, do we, in terms of what you actually need to, you know, build a team. And, you know, our, our experience from the military is that um, it's that training and those sort of systems and structures that actually bring that fighting unit together, isn't it? Very much so. I think everything from the symbology to uh, the understanding of what the job roles are. One beautiful yeah. thing about the military is people kind of know what people do. And that yeah. actually makes it easy to, inter- in some respects, easy to integrate teams and, and work more collectively. Yeah, yeah. A few less assumptions about what people are doing or not doing. You um, you end up in Afghanistan at the age of twenty two, leading a troop, and um, yeah. and in that sort of those circumstances, there must have been some really big leadership lessons in that time. Ah, uh, some phenomenal leadership lessons, I think, and I think that's true of a lot of people that ha- had the chance to deploy and serve, and maybe some unique ones that aren't always spoken about uh, for a long portion of that tour for no a particular reason um, my troop was doing a lot of repetitive support protection tasks and just by happenstance a lot of the other troops were getting into some action and actually that weighed on my troop you know hey boss we when's our turn we want to get into the action can you go fight for some better missions Um, you know know, maybe we're getting we're, we're getting the last opportunity because we're three platoon and that's how they do things. And it creates this dilemma for you as a leader of, you know, mm. is that actually what's happening or is it just circumstance and, and this is how the, you know, things play out. And so for a long time through the tour, I had to deal with trying to motivate the troop when they weren't doing all the exciting things. And then we hit a point where, well, that changed and it was our turn. And then we had the problems of 
trying to motivate them through difficult times. Yeah. You know, the, the death of a corporal, Matt Hopkins, um, combat and um, lots of IEDs and, and, and people feeling unsafe and uneasy. And, and we had all those challenges as well. So I think they bring about lots of leadership lessons. Yeah. So what do you what do you do when you're faced with that situation? I mean, people are confronting their own mortality in that environment, and while they're training in peace not peacetime, but but they're training, I guess, in the scenarios back in Australia. But but you're there, you're there on the on the ground in that combat zone. And what are the what are the things you've got to do as a leader to help people step up to that and to give, find their own courage? I guess. Um. I think you have to display steadiness um, and calmness above all else. I can remember a little trick I used to do is when something would happen, I'd turn my GPS on and it would take about 30, 40 seconds for the, to load up properly before I typically what you would do is you know send your, send your location if an incident happened. So if an IED went off or we got contacted, 30 to 40 seconds can seem like a long time. So I said to myself, I'd do nothing. I'm going to do nothing for 30 to 40 seconds before I take action. It's enough time to clear your mind and that brought steadiness to the way you then take action. And so you're not jumping on excited or flat and concerned. And I think that helps greatly in build motivation. And then the second thing is um, clarity of task or objective. You know, just simple, what do you need someone to do? And then let them go and do it. Don't try and own every step in that process. Hey, I need you fellas to go clear those four buildings. Here's some rules that we've got to play within. Let's go get it done. And trust that they can go do that. And I think the military teaches you that, you know, mission command and empowerment, but it's hard to put in place because you're held accountable for the outcome and and you've got to let go in order to actually do that. And and I think that worked. And it only worked because I had I had excellent corporals and sergeants on the ground yeah and when you were talking there and what i was what i was sort of thinking about is that um that 30 40 the seconds to actually choose a response rather than react is so important isn't it? i do that now yeah i do it now when a shareholder calls me and is upset about something or a customer calls and says something's gone wrong hey you know i'm just going to take some time to think about it i'll come back to you or um i just yeah. ask questions and buy time to think i think it's important to have a calm response to things. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that comes up in that is um, is that trust in people, isn't it? You know, you're directing people to do something. You need to let it go and you need to trust the people to get on with the job knowing that they've got that training and that ability and capability. Yeah, that's right. And do it in a way that it's okay if they make a few mistakes. That's not going to be catastrophic. Uh, in fact, that's the best way for a team to learn. Um, yeah. So you, you're keeping an eye on things but you're not making yeah. them feel like you're controlling every move. Yeah, yeah. It's a um, it's a deliberate choice, though, isn't it, to be able to let let go, to not try to control everything. Totally. Yeah. Um, and I think the things that enable you to make that choice is really knowing your people and their capabilities, um, right. and and knowing that they're going to understand what you say because you've you've spent time together or you've said those things before or you've discussed them you know, at the mess or over a coffee and there's this shared consciousness as it was described by, you know, some generals, um, McChrystal, I think that is important in enabling you to be able to make that conscious decision. Looking back at that time, you know, we know it doesn't go well all the time. What was one of the biggest lessons from your time in that particular area of operations? One of the things that I 
still regret to this day is not spending the time to get to know my soldiers' families before we deployed. And that was in part, I think, quite a fast ramp up, lots of field time and being really, really new. You don't think about all those things. You're so focused on trying to get ready and, and do all the kind of war fighting stuff. And, and it, it dawned on me after Matt was killed that I didn't have a relationship at even the smallest extent with his family. They'd never met me. Right. And I was writing a letter and making a phone call to someone I'd never known with the worst news that you ever get. And that's terrible. Yeah. Um, and and that, that stays with me. That will stay with me forever about and, and they teach you that in some respects, but not really. Like, you know, like it's it's written down and, and I think maybe others did a better job. But that's one of the things that I think I really learnt um, mm. and I'll, I'll hold on to forever. Yeah. It's actually um there's kind of a, a few myths, I guess, around in 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 workplaces and and in in business culture today, where you know, like expectations are that people just come to work and contribute to their work, and actually, I don't need to know much about sort of what goes on their personal life. But but actually, people turn up as a integrated human, and and your particular situation there is a, a case in point where that person gives their life, and and it's so important that you actually know who they are and and know their family. I could not agree more. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it also is about you being a human. Mm. You know, uh, last night on our executive call at 8 p.m., three time zones, and I've got my one-year-old yeah. hanging out with me. And, you know, most of those people have kids. Mm. And, you know, they're probably coming to that call feeling like they've got to keep their kids quiet or something because we're in the meeting with the boss. But that's not how life works, you know. Yeah. And so I think little things like that make you human, and I think that's an important part of leadership. Yeah. Uh, love to come back and talk a little bit more about the culture you're set in for um, the organization you're now the CEO of. Um, you come back from Afghanistan and um, head off to the other uh, school of infantry to teach the next group of people to go off to do the same task. What, what were the kind of things that you brought back and shared with them and helped them get ready? Yeah, what, a, what an amazing opportunity. Lots of us went from the 7th Battalion to the school of infantry across all rank levels. And so it was a really good move by whoever thought that was a good move mm -hmm. um, to bring um, corporal sergeants, warrant officers and, and officers back to the school because, as you know, we'd already sent the next rotation and there were four more lined up and, and we're on a decade of, of, of war footing. And it meant that you had people with lived experience that could translate what was in doctrine to real-time examples and how you adapted the lesson to reality. And that helped people prepare. And that's everything from what the doctrine said about delivering a quick attack orders to here's a video. You know, what my tour was when head camps started coming out. Here's a video of us delivering quick attack orders. And it's not perfect. Probably wouldn't have passed the, the assessment, but we executed a great mission. And here are the reasons that it worked. And, and yeah. that translation, I think, was really valuable for young officers and sergeants it was a joint course at that time to um uh, to understand so i mean that's one example and then the time that you get to spend with the young officers in particular in the mess uh, at pt and they get to ask you all the questions they don't want to ask you in the in the classroom yeah you know particularly for me like what was it like handling a death handling those explosions what kind of questions did you get from your soldiers like that's where real learning happens 
and that yeah. only happens through osmosis. I think it was valuable. Yeah. And uh, do you think there are ways in which you've taken that and applied it, you know, with you, with me now, a lived experience? Is that something you see as important for your workplace? What, um, how do you, how do you think about I do. This? I yeah. do. I can think of a recent conversation when there's a lot of moving parts in some stuff we're doing in the business right now and the, the team are really asking for what's the specific plan and the specific next steps. And my response is, well, actually, we don't know. We kind of know where we're heading the mission outcome and we know there's a few ways it might play out the plan but we need a few actions to to occur before we can make decisions and we come back to the military which taught us to act sense decide and adapt and and that's what we're doing in business so we've got to wait for something to happen today before we make a big decision next week and and so i do think those lived experiences translate quite nicely into the boardroom we just call them different things yeah and that is the nature of our business environment right now, isn't it? It's complex, and so therefore, uh, we don't have all the answers. It is about taking action and then being prepared to observe what happens, look for the emergence, and then decide what to do next. I think that's true, and I think the military teaches you to be decisive, but the power isn't in thinking critically and making the right decision. It's in constantly making decisions and moving yes. forward, and that's that's how you get around big problems. Yeah. And being prepared to adjust when you need to as well. Totally. Yeah. You um, get to a point and you decide that, um, you know, it's time to leave the army and transition. What was the catalyst for that? What was the decision made for you? <laughs> ah, no, it wasn't made for me. It was a really hard decision, like two-year yeah. decision. Um, yeah. I was working in Townsville at the Combat Training Center, which was a fantastic job planning mm-hmm. big international exercises. Um, I was doing my post-grad business masters through UNSW like many young officers do and I was building a rock climbing gym because Townsville didn't have one at the time and I was liked rock climbing and I thought I'd try and get into business and maybe this would be my exit strategy and I'd get into a small business and that sounded pretty exciting uh-huh. um, and that was the point at which I think I realized that I was doing these three full-time activities in their own right and uh, maybe that I wanted something more than what the the military could offer me but it was really just an idea at that point and so i was thinking about it i had you know i was playing in business and learning and i took a posting to defense force recruiting in melbourne that was my last posting um that was my first time ever working in a corporate setting turning up to an office building with a blended workforce of civilians non-defense civilians and military people um first time i'd lived and worked in a city like a Mm -hmm. like a major city um Mm -hmm. And it gave me a different perspective. And so I thought I wanted to jump out and get into business, but still have impact on society and be a good citizen. Um, And then I kind of stumbled into the founder of With You With Me. I hadn't met him before, didn't know him in the military. And um, he ended up offering me a position in the company. And I left from being a last year captain in the army to on 70 grand a year as an account manager in a startup with a big idea. And here we are. And it's gone from strength to strength, but but like every um, like every I guess journey, it uh, it has its own ups and downs. What else did you need to think about in terms of that transition for you, from being sort of in full time service to uh, to now outside? Oh, it's really hard to figure out what what you want to do. Undoubtedly, and and I know this from my personal experience, and hun- literally hundreds of veterans that I've spoken to over the years through this company and just the network and 
And it's hard because you, it's hard to describe what it is that you do in the military, let alone then try and determine what a job description says or what a company does. And those logos don't mean a lot of things. And so reappropriating your purpose is difficult. And <laughs> my purpose was I like solving big problems and I like contributing to society. Yeah. Um, and so this company fit that bill or well, the idea of it when it was sort of three of us and it still does now. And so that's always my advice and that's how I think about transition is you've got to just think more um, creatively about the purpose, not such a linear black and white job description matched job description. Like I don't think that's the way to go about it. Yeah. It's um, it's a situation where you've almost got, you've got to be comfortable letting it um, be organic in a way, don't you? And do you think there are some steps that people can take that, that can be make that more effective to get to sort of the, you know, the, grassroots of what that new purpose or real purpose might be beyond um, military service yeah i think one of the steps that people always say which i agree with but i'll elaborate on is networking um but networking can be hard if you're not an extroverted people person um but the real value in the networking is not finding out what people do it's asking them why they do it why did you go to that defense prime or why did you go to the bank you know, and ask people's journey as to why I think is more valuable than what, because there's so many different types of jobs out there. Um, you've got to be able to link it back to something that you care about and hearing what they care about gives you inspiration for the things that you might care about. So I think that's valuable. Um, so meeting people, networking and asking that I think is key. Um, and then I think you have to go and relook at yourself, not, not just the military version of yourself, but like who you are and who you'd like to be. Um, and that can be done through testing. Um, it can be done through professionals, trained psychologist professionals, um, or just through your friends and, and asking them, friends and family, you know, what do they imagine that you'd be now that you're closing down this part of your life and starting something new? I think you've got to be quite open to those conversations. But yeah. that only works for people that are controlling the journey. There's a whole bunch of people that don't want to leave and aren't in control of that journey and it gets forced upon them. And that's a whole different ballgame. Yes. Yeah, because those folk have got to deal with the grief of the fact that their, you know, expectations of a, a career over a longer period of time is not going to happen. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What you know, you've you progressed in uh, with you with me, um, and you've got to now be the CEO of that organisation. What did the military not teach you that you've found you've learned since leaving full time service? The military did not teach me how to lead and motivate various motivations and desires mm -hmm. generally speaking in the military people have a pretty close to similar motivation and desire and all that stuff we mentioned at the start about symbology and training it really creates an underpinning culture that in my opinion makes leadership a fair bit easier it can be in more difficult circumstances but the fundamental leadership is a little bit easier because of those things Whereas I found very quickly in business, wow, all these people are here for different reasons. Someone's here because they love the cause. Great. That person's going to be easy for me to lead. Someone's here because they just need money and they're, they're looking after their family. Someone's here because it's a stepping stone to their career mm. and that's actually a good thing. How do I harness that? And so you get way more diverse motivations and the military does not, in my opinion, teach us how to do that well. Um, and it, maybe it shouldn't, but that's what I, that's what I figured. One of the other things I think is the it doesn't teach you 
doesn't teach you to develop your styles of leadership in yeah. a real diverse way. The military has a few ways that it likes people to lead, but there are so many more and that self-development is hard. Even if you were doing it in the military, it can be hard to apply. Um, but I think in, in business, you get more opportunity depending on the growth stage of your business, who you're dealing with, the position you're in. And, and I think you have to go on that learning journey. Yeah. You've sort of gone from account officer now to be the CEO um, with, with, with you, with me. The company's taken some new directions and we've just come out of COVID. What are you seeing in the in the marketplace right now that, that's got your attention with regards to your business and leadership? So fundamentally, our business is about changing people's view of talent from one that puts the value on their last job and experience like the resume, to a view that puts the value on their ability, yeah. their aptitude and their ability to learn skills, the recency of those skills. That's a huge change for organizations, for society. Lots of models and impressive companies have been built off the fundamental idea and the data sets that experience predicts future performance. And um, our military experience and, and other veterans would attest to this doesn't agree with that. You know, how often do we have to learn new skills quickly and deploy with those skills? And the value of the people in your team is not that they've been on 10 deployments. It's that they're agile and adaptable, you know, all those good words. So that's what the business is fundamentally about. So it's trying to change a big vision. So what am I seeing in the market? Um, I'm seeing the market shift from wanting to um, spend lots of money, grow their businesses rapidly, hire lots of talent. Um, which is prosperous economic environment to profitability, um, lean down the business, get more out of people, retention, retention. Um, what can I do for my employees and restricting their spending? And that's that's the impact on our business right now. It's also on many others and you're seeing that in the market. So they still need skilled people. That hasn't actually slowed down, um, but they're thinking differently now post-COVID, post-economic changes about how they can get that problem solved. Yeah. One of the challenges that seems to that I seem to hear a lot about um, is that retention of people. What are your thoughts about that? What do are, what are, what are leaders, businesses need to be doing? And what, what, the perspective they need to take around that because all businesses need some kind of turnover of people, but what yeah. are your thoughts about that? Um. In the context of our vision and mission, I think retention is about empowering people to reach their potential in the workforce. Um, you could think about it in a simple example of learning skills that matter for the future. As a business, I can give you money to learn skills and I can pull the tagline that professional development is a key part of our retention policy. What's more valuable than that is telling you which skills the business is going to be investing in and really needs for the future and why these jobs are going to be coming online. This is going to pivot. We're going after this market. If you learn these skills, you continue to become relevant, competitive, and forward thinking in the business, and you'll be able to contribute more. And so you're giving the path of the skills that you want them to obtain. And then more than that, showing them their aptitude and that they're actually the right fit to do that. So you're giving everybody equal accessibility to future skills as opposed to just letting people decide based on their own self-assessment. And typically people won't decide. 
um, because they don't feel confident. So you've got to, got to show them that they're confident. So I think that's the key thing that we're focused on trying to help organizations with when it comes to retention, including defense. You know, we work with the Australian Army, we work with the Canadian Army um, on retention and using some of our thinking around how do you help people think about diverse career pathways, reskilling, continuing to serve, um, but in new ways. Uh, and that's been really inspiring. What I like about that is that um, that that approach sort of um, helps that employee, uh, you know, that key member of your team actually align with the, the future of the business rather than diversion perhaps. Yeah, I think that's true. And companies struggle, um, including us, we've struggled with this, to associate the business strategy and future capability requirements with the current people and their underlying potential to meet those requirements. Um, and if we can stitch that together, which is some of the things that we're trying to do, you can both empower employees and start to chew away at the business strategy, um, and that's positive for everybody. Uh, one of the sort of uh, taglines to with you with me is about data-led employment. What does that actually mean? Um, how does that translate for me as a business owner? So part of our model is demonstrating the underlying potential of the workforce through aptitude testing and um, and psychometrics. So we have a we have a solution that allows businesses to test their workforce, their current workforce, um, or their recruitment pipeline. Um, we put people coming through our free programs through the same model to help them figure out what their potential is. So data-led employment is about using data to drive the decisions you're making about who to hire for what role. And the key data points that we thought were missing in the market that we're now driving at is aptitude. So a, a benchmark for someone's ability matched to a relevant skill framework. You know, Martin, you've got the ability to become a cyber analyst level three. You probably didn't know that. That's empowering point one. Um, the company also wasn't looking at you like that. That's data-led point two. Um, and then the success of doing that afterwards. So looking at the learning journey, the productivity, um, and proving that that model, that skills-led model is a benefit to the organization. This is all data-led employment. Whereas yeah. in the past, the data was show me your resume, do a behavioral interview or a panel interview, and we'll make a risk-based assessment on whether we think you're a good fit. And, it, and the result of decades of that is the market saying there's no skilled talent in the market. No, yeah. there's plenty of skilled talent. They just don't have the skills that you need. So we've got to build the skills uh, and let's use data-led employment to do that. Uh, that sounds exciting. It sounds like it's a really useful um, to be forensic a little bit and to then, particularly when we talk about the future of work and the fact that, you know, career paths, employment, um, what we do at work is going to change over time to actually be leading that and, and being a, a agile around that sounds like a very exciting prospect. So there's a book on, it's about retention, total motivation, TOMO uh, theory. Yeah. And one of the core things they say is motivating for people in the workforce is play. Mm. And my play is having fascinating conversations with customers about this problem and their talent solutions and helping them think creatively mm. about skills-based hiring. And that opens up this talent pool, such as veterans, you know, indigenous, return-to-work parents, whatever it might be, and they can think differently about it. And, and that's what I'm trying to get our staff to be really excited about as well. That's, that's a form of play. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I have to get that book. <laughs> you um future of the business is obviously pretty clear and, and I'm loving the adaptability of it. You know, what's the advice you'd give to 
those that are sort of looking to lean into leadership, take more responsibility today, what would what advice would you give them? Um, the first thing I would say is um, be really clear about expectations. If you've taken on a new role, you're taking on responsibility, you're stepping into leadership for the first time, the biggest friction to overcome is did the person hear what you were trying to explain? And clarity of expectation is 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 really key, I think, to getting the outcomes that you want um, from from the people working with you. Um, the second thing, which I think goes hand in hand, is seeking to understand. When when positive and negative things arise, when problems happen, um, when people come to you with information, you know it's, it's really hard to find the truth in anything. Everyone's got a view of the world, and so seeking to understand gives you a broader view of the world before you start to take action. Um, and I think that speaks to what we were talking about earlier in, in being calm and taking time. Uh, and the final thing I would say is when you make a decision and you have to make a decision, you should explain why. Lead with why in every circumstance, then what and how. And I think that has helped me greatly in bringing people on the journey as to how we got to this decision and now where we're going. Yeah, pretty cool. Along the way, what are the, the resources that have helped you sort of, you know, continue to grow as a leader? Um, books. Mm-hmm. I think clearly books and not necessarily the popular ones. I loved reading um, Alfred Adler's Adlerian Psychology, which is about society, uh, contribution, contribution to society is great for mental health. Um, uh, like I liked reading about, um, leadership, uh, leadership and self-deception talks about interpersonal relationship and communication in the workplace. And so I think books are key, right? There's lots of research out there and finding ones that work for you is, is important. I think my peers, learning from my peers, se- seeking to understand and solving problems together and being inclusive and collaborative, I think is great. And then we in this business have had the luxury of some really great advisors like globally, some fascinating people that I would never have dreamed of meeting. Um, and knowing when to ask them questions is is been very helpful. Yeah. And then maybe the final thing I would say is um, learning to ask really good questions is a great way of like there's a there's a skill there. Like it's it could be taught. And learning right. how to ask really good questions is a great way to learn more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very much one for say that um, sometimes it's not about having all the answers, sometimes it's about having good questions. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah. The um, leadership is not a necessarily an easy journey. It's a constant. It's a, it's got, it requires that consistent focus. What would you say have been sort of those top three keys to your own personal success? Ooh, three. Being a people-centric leader, I think, is key. Maybe people would use other terms, uh, servant leader, transformational leader, but I think it's all about people. And I feel like I try to do that every day. Whether I'm the best at it or not is to be determined at some point, maybe. I don't know. I think learning to ask really good questions again is been key. I never think that I know the answer. And I had to learn that. Coming out of the military, you're quite directive just by nature. And it took me years, two, two odd years in this business working with customers and, and veterans and people to really mellow and, and you know learn to ask good questions. And then I think maybe the last one is you've got to stand by your actions and your decisions, whether they're good or bad, 
outcomes with equal weighting. You got to stand by it and just stay steady and keep moving forward. Yeah, a large part of that is being prepared to keep moving forward, isn't it? And sort of to to be deliberate, be demonstrative, take action. I joke sometimes with the team here about rule number one is just keep turning up, mm-hmm. because you know you have good days and bad days, and you never really know what you're going to get. Um, but that's yeah. kind of exciting, and uh, just keep turning up, and we'll probably mm-hmm. achieve the mission. Yeah, comes back to the things I can control, not the ones I can't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, look, Tom, it's been great to uh, to catch up. Um, you know, thanks for sharing something of, uh, of with you, with me, and uh, and your own personal leadership journey. I want to jump into some rapid fire questions to to wrap us up. Um, so, going to ask you to fill in the blank where it's appropriate. Um, leadership is blank. Inspirational. Inspirational. Cool. What's your go-to book on leadership? Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. Yeah, great book. It's on the shelf behind me here. I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. People psychology. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things that we've got to spend time on, isn't it? Yeah, but I also don't think I probably would have comprehended it as easily earlier in my career. You know, you kind of, as you get a bit older, you, you take that sort of information in a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. I often say to people, um, you know, there's a great um, expectation for us to be so technically competent at the beginning um, that we sort of often don't give ourselves time to, we're catching up later in life around those sort of things that help us make us emotionally competent. Um, You get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your company. What are the first words to that person? Uh, uh, It's probably either, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Or... Would you like a coffee? Yeah, that well, that that helps us slow down, doesn't it? Take that. That's it. Seconds. Buy yeah. some time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the last question is: uh, Is there a go-to quote on leadership that's had some influence on your leadership? Oh, it's totally perpetual optimism is yeah. a force multiplier. Yeah, um, I'm a I'm a naturally optimistic person. I I wake up every day and believe that everything will be okay, yeah. and. I think that's key in permeating across your workforce. Yeah. Well, that's a great thought to finish up with. Thanks, Tom, for being on the podcast. Uh, All the best to you and look forward to catching up in person sometime soon. Thanks, Martin. I had a really good time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.